Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. Missing today, as she will periodically be missing, is Emily Jane Fox. As many of you know, she's on maternity leave. Today, I've got with me today special correspondent, Gabe Sherman. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you. Last time we were here, uh, you you came on and we had a fabulous conversation about what? Remind me what we talked about. It was the uh, the dying days of the Trump administration. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. Seems and like we were, uh, ages ago, yeah. but wasn't that long ago. I know. And we were speculating back then about, uh, you know, when Trump's gone, will the media suffer? Will the will we get a more diversity of stories uh, in the media? And um, and the media did suffer. And for a while, we have had uh, diversity of stories, but um, certain themes keep cropping back up again. I think uh, Ron DeSantis and the governor of Texas are keeping some of the um, Trumpian kind of uh, mania alive with their, you know, anti-mask mandate hardline. Well, and you have um, in the current issue of Vanity Fair a lengthy chronicle of your journey to Florida to understand just how much of Trumpism continues to define Republican politics. And um, I mean, we could spend all day talking about the photographs alone, but... um, (laughs) Uh, Bruce Gilden, man. Uh, So... That's true. And uh, people who have been listening to this podcast over the summer, we sort of teased this, I think, last week. We're, and we have been that, oh, I've got a story coming and it's about Florida, but that's all I can say. Well, now it's out, the story. And it is a kind of a chronicle of a, a travelogue of sorts. I went to Florida. I met with some very curious figures like Roger Stone and Coulter, a, a group of women who called themselves the Trumpettes. So why don't Joe, for to start things off, just talk about the genesis of the story and why why you thought Florida was such a place to go to to do an autopsy of the current state of the party. Well, beside the obvious, you know, you've got Mar-a-Lago, right? You've got Trump headquarters. Trump obviously uh, made that his sort of like Southern White House for a while, and uh, so consequently. Not that shockingly, lots of Fox News personalities and different kinds of talk radio people went down to hang with him at Mar-a-Lago, and it was sort of where you kissed the ring. And uh, But it occurred to me that a lot of the DNA of Trumpism had been in Florida all along, and that, that so many events, political events that happened in Florida, I'm thinking about the 2000 election and that kind of mania that happened back then, and Matt Drudge was down there, and Coulter was down there, and you, Rush Limbaugh. And I began to think, wow, the media and our politics have become Floridized, <laughs> you know? Well, and of course, you have the National Enquirer and more recently Newsmax down there. Well, exactly. And that, so they, somebody was just asking me this morning, oh, how did you come onto this National Enquirer subplot? And it, it kind of, um, it just occurred to me, I was thinking, I was free associating on Florida, and I was like, oh, well, the National Enquirer is down there. They've been down there for years. And then, it, of course, we have since learned that the National Enquirer was an ally of Trump's in helping kind of slime his enemies and uh, protect him from, uh, you know, bimbo eruptions, as we used to call them in the Clinton times. Well, and I love that even going back a generation, the, the birth of the National Enquirer traces back to Trump's mentor, Roy Cohn who was childhood friends with Gene Pope, who was the the owner of the National Enquirer. So you have 
this New York Palm Beach history that goes back 60, 70 years. That's right. Well, that when I learned that, that uh, Gene Pope, the founder of the Enquirer, and Roy Cohn, Trump's mentor, had been childhood friends, that was a big uh, light bulb for me. And the other thing is that um, there's a great story uh, from the late 80s or early 90s that was in Vanity Fair, and it was about Roy Cohn's last days. I've read that many times. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Because part of it is spent at the, um, at the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach, and uh, he's, you know, he's dying of AIDS, and he's sitting out on, a, on the veranda, you know, kind of watching the ocean. And what a kind of dark, kind of poignant to the degree that you can feel sympathy for Roy Cohn. Well, and, and, you know, one thing that I'm struck by just thinking about our current reality is, you know, Roy denied that he had AIDS the same way Trump is denying that he lost the election. I mean, that's right. That Roy just refused to accept reality up until the very end. And I think there's so much of Trump we see in him. Yeah, that's a very good observation. Well, uh, yes. And so, you know, any story of Roy Cohn uh, would be a kind of skeleton key to our modern politics and to the modern world. Um, kind of hard to believe that a guy like that, you know, a lawyer from New York could wield that kind of influence. But, you know, he was somebody who broke down the wall between the media and, and, and the political world in many ways. But, you know, the New York media, the tabloid New York media, was a kind of playground for his schemes, Right. I mean, he had he had the New York Post on speed dial. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, yeah. after he bought the Post, he was one of Roy's biggest clients. So anything he wanted would get into the Post. That's right. And so, you know, that same um, strategy uh, worked between Trump and the Inquirer. And of course, when he bought Mar-a-Lago uh, as a place and started to try to build it up, he was centrally located down there near the Inquirer and began to cultivate reporters from there. And of course, when I was in Florida, just this last May, I interviewed a guy named Larry Haley, who had been, you know, the um, kind of editor and reporter on the scene and knew, and became friends with friends, quote unquote, you know, uh, source, uh, you know, source reporter relationship with Trump and got Trump into the National Enquirer on a regular basis and began to be invited to Mar-a-Lago, was invited to his wedding, put pictures of his babies in the Enquirer. So that was a hand-in-glove relationship. And so, you know, what my quest in going down there to write this piece was like, it had occurred to me, and I'm sure you, it's kind of obvious when you just look at it, that our media has become more tabloid-esque, Right. We are in a world of more opinion, of course, but also things are, especially in the conservative media sphere, they bandy about half-baked stories all the time. Well, it's, you know, to me, the, the easiest way to think about it is it's defined, the current media, which has this tabloid DNA, is defined by personality and narrative. And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the way the New York Post front page is seen as this, you know, never-ending story that with these characters that come and go and, you know, you and I worked at the New York Observer, which Peter Kaplan, the, our, our late mentor and great editor, also thought of the weekly installments as sort of chapters in this Victorian novel. And, mm-hmm. and now the conservative media has, has sort of adopted that. And it doesn't even matter if these stories are true. They just develop these storylines. Like I remember, you know, back in 2016, it was Hillary's health. She was on death's door. Mm-hmm. 
or right. or you have Joe Biden's you know senility. You just have these these storylines that get adopted, and then you know the, they just run with it. And it's I mean, on a sort of pure um, kind of nihilist level, it's very entertaining. I mean, it's it's fun, sure. but you mm-hmm. know, it's also completely destructive to our politics. And by the way, those stories you just mentioned were big National Enquirer covers, right? Uh, Hillary's illness, Joe's potential mental problems and all these kinds of things. Another thing that and we think of this as a kind of like the uh, media gutter over here, but that is no longer the case. It used to be the National Enquirer and the style of the National Enquirer was something that happened, was over in this sort of... uh, kind of back alley of the media, but that back alley is now the front of the media in many ways, especially conservative media. But as you know, and as we all know, we're all a part of this. We're all sort of um, implicated in this in many ways, because the narratives you're talking about were ones that that's what Trump wielded as a power. He created a constant reality TV narrative that appeared in the New York Times. It appeared in on Fox News. It was a constant thing. And, and the people working for him were feeding these stories, and we were all covering it, and it subsumed and consumed, you know, our media spectrum, our, our all of our broadband, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of has an evil genius to it, right? Because everybody wants to pay attention to it, but you're paying attention to it because you're horrified, and uh, it's like watching a train wreck every day of your life, right? Yeah. That's was That was the Trump years. Um, it's funny because when I was down in Florida, one of the questions I kept asking people— yeah. Was I would be with Roger Stone or Nan Coulter, and I would say, I know that you, you know, uh, supported Trump and you were his political ally. You believed that he might do things that you wanted to be done, like, for instance, Ann Coulter hoped that he would build the wall, right? Because he's anti immigrant. And Roger Stone, of course, is more like, this is my, you know, bread and butter here uh, working for, for Trump, and he's known him for years. Introduced by Roy Cohn, by the way. You know, um, the question I kept asking everyone was like, yes, you agreed with him, but don't you see how toxic this was to America? Did you have even the slightest sense of relief that you didn't have to pay attention to this every single day of your life? You know, and they all kind of like begrudgingly said, yeah, we understand that this has not been great for the American conversation. But they were like, well, but it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and they were getting rich off of it, too. Right. Well, that's the thing. They just you know, they've all been entertainer uh, pundits and, you know, they've exploited the media. They've used the media. They've been a part of it. Their attention horrors, you know, they, they need this. Yeah. And they helped invent it. And in the piece, and as Coulter is talking about, yeah, Drudge and me and Rush, we pioneered this. And she's actually resentful that, you know, the Sean Hannity's of the world and um, other, you know, Mark Levin and other people have come along and basically on their shoulders totally. created entire careers. And, of course, it's easy for her to look back and, and or look at them and say, oh, these guys are like um, sort of intellectually subpar and they just stole our style. But, you know, it's not like Ann Coulter's style was uh, uh, always 100 percent intellectually, um, you know, edifying. But and so we know that's metastasized on the right. And, and there's versions of it on the left. We can't say that MSNBC doesn't share some of this, um, you know, style. And anybody can argue about whether whether one or the other is more intellectually um, kind of uh, consistent or whatever. But 
So my thing is, the other thing, our aspect of this is that a lot of these people are in Florida. They moved to Florida. They made that their base. And there's all these reasons why they like the weather. The tax situation is is better for them. Yeah. Um, but all of them have begun to think of Florida as some kind of like, you know, outpost. And uh, so you saw in the, in the article that I interviewed this woman, Laura Loomer, who is kind of uh, the most quintessential Gener- I guess you see a millennial. Is she Gen Z? She's a young person, but she's the, the the love child of like 20 years of this kind of right wing media thing. And she's, you know, let's just be honest. She's like complete crackpot when it comes to what she believes and thinks. And she's anti-Islamic and says terrible, terrible things. But but she's running for Congress down there. She has Trump's backing. She's friends with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you're like, wow, this is the world we're living in. And that makes, you know, it's I, I like Florida. Okay, I've been to Florida. It's beautiful parts of it. It's great. Weather's awesome. But there are a lot of like, uh, it's there's a concentration of crackpots ending up down there, and it's like an alternate reality. So yeah, I want to talk um, just briefly about um, you know one of the parts of your piece which I was really entertained by was you know this sort of mini quest to find Matt Drudge and to go to his house okay. and you know I I think of um, you know Drudge. Uh, in many ways, like we talked about Roy Cohn, is really one of the originators of the current world we live in. And I think, you know, what Matt did and what the conservative media has now continued to do is he forced, you know, the quote unquote rest of us to pay attention to stories that we wouldn't have Mm -hmm. normally paid attention to. And let's all remember the first story that really put Matt on the map was when he broke the scoop that Michael Isikoff and Newsweek magazine were not going to report on Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. And by putting it on the Drudge Report and putting it on the internet, he kind of forced the media to cover it. And now we are forced to pay attention to all sorts of stories that Matt and the right-wing media covers. But I think that, you know, 19, you know, the late 90s, really the rise of Drudge through the recount of 2000, I think is that's those are the years that America really changed because of, you know, the Floridization of our media. Um, you know, and the other thing I wanted to talk about is, um, you know, obviously, you know, the current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, um, who in many ways is the sort of front runner of keeping the, the MAGA torch going. And mm-hmm. a lot of Republicans um, are looking to him as the kind of the future of the Trump movement as somebody who can talk about, you know, kind of no mask mandates and COVID denying at the same time of, you know, he has, you know, you know, one operative has told me that he's Trump without the negatives, that he's not as, you know, carnivalesque as Trump. So, I mean, I think I was curious from you, having spent time on the ground in Florida, you know, what is the what is the mood about you know, DeSantis and is this feeling that this is kind of a um, the 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 next, you know, Republican regime in waiting down there? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because everybody had different ideas about what his prospects were for 2024. A lot of people I met down there did not think Trump would run in 2024, but they thought DeSantis was setting himself up to be the great hope of the right, of the Trumpian right, and that Trump would be in the background. But I kept saying to some of them, I was like, don't you think, how do you think Trump's going to like like watching DeSantis 
be like, for, let's say, the GOP candidate for president, and he's just going to lay back? Yeah. Right? No. And, and do you think, on conversely, that DeSantis is just going to take phone calls from Trump and, and follow his marching orders? No. This is like a collision waiting to happen. And of course, you have reported yeah. in Vanity Fair and on The Hive that already there's daylight between them and on various issues. And um, for instance, he didn't want Trump out giving um, you know, speeches uh, during like um, the time when he was dealing with the Surfside tragedy because uh, it kind of looked bad. Well, it did look bad. It was bad. Um, so, uh, but a lot of the people down there didn't want to cope with that, uh, the daylight that they, yeah. that might be between them because that would almost give them, uh, you know, cognitive dissonance, right? Because <laughs> they, yeah. they want to think of it as all one monolithic thing, but there's two men there with two egos, and that's just not going to happen, right? Totally. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, I mentioned in the story that there are already flags in the yards. There are already baseball caps being produced that say DeSantis, yeah, 2024 and Make America Florida. Make America Florida. I mean, and now look what's going on in Florida. It's like it took that little, you know, prospective campaign slogan and turned it on its ear. And now nobody wants to be Florida because if you look on the, you know, COVID map right now, it's a deep purple, you know, rising cases in a terrible situation. Well, I, I just want to stop right there for a minute because I think DeSantis is is playing with a third rail that burned Trump in 2020, which is the virus, right? You know, Trump thought through kind of force of personality and, you know, just outright lies that he could control the virus and convince people that COVID wasn't a big deal and that it would just magically disappear. And DeSantis has basically adopted the same playbook, saying there's going to be no lockdowns, no mandates. And, you know, you guys are just a bunch of, uh, you know, liberal snowflake bedwetters who are worried about the virus. And, you know, for much of last year, that seemed actually to be a relatively, you know, risky but smart strategy. You know, Florida didn't have the spikes that New York or California has had. And I wouldn't pretend to know why. I've, obviously, I don't cover public health, but I'll leave that to the epidemiologist. But, you know, DeSantis really dodged a bullet last year, but now we see the numbers are exploding. And DeSantis is learning the lesson that Trump learned, which is that, you know, you can't control this virus. And if you think that you can just you know, spin and use propaganda and, in, and misinformation to convince people that it's not a big deal, you know, you're going to find out that you're, you're wrong. And, and just to close the circle here, I think one of the reasons I, I, I think Trump lost is that at some point in 2020, Matt Drudge decided that the virus was a much bigger character and a, and a better storyline for him than Trump was. And if you see Really, from the moment COVID took off, Drudge really turned hard against Trump and made the virus the main character of the site. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
And that was one of the mysteries I was trying to, you know, explore in my piece. And of course, you can't get Matt Dredge to return your call, as many, many people have tried. Uh, and of course, I met a reporter down there, a great guy named Bob Norman, investigative reporter in Miami, who uh, ha- went and knocked on, you know, Dredge's door, you know, maybe a year ago. And uh, Dredge freaked out and threatened to call the cops on him now, and stuff. Now, talk real quick about this this theory that's been percolating that Drudge may have, in fact, sold the website. Well, that's one theory. And I heard it from somebody who insists it's true, but I wasn't in a position or a comfort level to confirm that. But but it was pretty a fascinating concept that he sold it, cashed out, and whoever bought it decided, uh, you know, part of the deal would be, hey, you got to keep up the ruse that you're still running this thing because you're the brand. But the subplot to the whole thing was that some liberal investment group had uh, bought it in advance of the election to turn on Trump on purpose and use it as a strategic uh, Sort of a Trojan horse, yeah, inside, though. Exactly. Well, um, you know, I've always been, you know, mystified by the fact that the site really kind of has been supporting Biden. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, he's he'll take a shots here and there, but I, you know, it's kind of a hodgepodge of right-wing headlines, but then, you know, kind of this weird fondness for, you know, just mainstream causes. It's, I don't quite understand the, the thinking behind it. Well, it has retained some of the, you know, classic drudge, Interests like uh, paranoia about surveillance, right? That's a classic, classic Drudge one. Um, Hollywood you know, gossip, Hollywood gossip, UFOs. He, I mean, you know, stuff that he's borrowed and was inspired by the Inquirer. In fact, as you learned in my piece, that he is a big fan of the Inquirer and used to hang out with the Inquirer. I love staff. that anecdote about him flying on the plane and telling Ann Coulter that you'll never learn anything in the New York Times. That's right, and he had a, you know, his National Inquirer in his lap. Um, but that makes so much sense. I mean, that's Drudge in a nutshell. He's the ultimate tabloid reporter. I mean, he is, you know, and I would say that he had a huge impact on our culture and on our news system. And, you know, I don't know how much impact he had turning on Trump, though. You know, that's a question is like, did that work? I mean, I think Trump has, you know, created so much loyalty that I don't think there's a loyalty to a media outlet is secondary now to the Trump loyalty. And so that's forced places like Newsmax and other, you know, conservative media outlets. They all just become Trump TV, right? But they don't have a choice because they're like, this is the audience now. Even Murdoch, Murdoch's made that decision too, right? They were temporarily horrified by the insurrection, but it was temporary, which I find just unbelievable that people, uh, you know, looked at that and and thought, well, we can spin that and soften it now in the in the rear view. I want to um, talk about one thing in um, in relation to Florida and and your piece and and some things I've been reporting. So I have a, I had a piece on the Hive this week about um, a new legal filing in an ongoing lawsuit against the billionaire financier Leon Black, who um, until recently ran the private equity firm Apollo Global Management. He's worth about ten billion dollars. You know, one of the the biggest players on Wall Street and. Um, in this piece, um, I report that a former Russian model is alleging in a new court filing that um, in 2008, <laughs> um, kind of horrifyingly, right, you know, as the, at the depths of the financial crisis, October 08, this model alleges that Leon Black flew her from uh, New York to Palm Beach, 
to have sex with Jeffrey Epstein, who was, according to this model, um, Leon Black's stated best friend. They were constantly texting, according to her, um, calling each other. And it got me thinking um, about Florida and specifically Palm Beach, but Florida kind of writ large as, you know, this place that geographically is kind of um, at the end of America, right? It's jutting out into the Caribbean. And I think it fosters a, a kind of a mindset among people that it's kind of beyond, you know, the reach of kind of law and morality. And it's this kind of place where, you know, particularly the rich and powerful go to kind of, you know, live out this kind of hedonistic fantasy where the rules don't apply. And, you know, and it's bipartisan. I mean, of course, Joe Kennedy famously had a compound in Palm Beach and William Kennedy Smith had the famous uh, rape trial in Palm Beach. Um, so this isn't a necessarily a Republican or issue. It's a both parties. But, you know, and I think Epstein and, and Leon Black are kind of the sort of evil version of this. But it's this place where they could go and, and the New York media is not watching and it's Palm Beach Island is literally an island. It's kind of walled off from the, the moat that separates it from West Palm. And so I just think of Florida as this place that once you're there, you start to kind of feel like you can just do anything because it's it's so removed from everyday, you know, quote unquote, everyday life. So I was curious, you know, again, your thoughts on being down there and and the sense of law, the lawlessness that people think about. Absolutely. I mean, I thought when I was going down there, I was like, oh, yeah, Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, was down there getting like, you know, massaged, quote unquote, at these like, you know, and, you know, soliciting illegal behaviors. Let's just put it that way. Yes, exactly. This It's the end of the world in a way, end of America. And it's where a lot of people go because they got nothing left. It's like a last chance place, you know. And uh, if you lost everything, oh, let's just I'm moving to Florida and let's just, you know, roll the dice. Right. Meanwhile, it's like as often called the sixth borough of Manhattan, because there's a lot of people that just go down there right to the snowbirds we know about. But just the rich to be able to have compounds. Right. Having a, a Park Avenue address is great. But what if you could have a whole compound and just do whatever the hell you wanted down there and the weather's great? Yeah. Right? Well, and you just hit on something that I've thought about as well, which is this is the second thought I wanted to come to is, you know, everyone talks about California as kind of the, the vanguard of America. But I've now come to see Florida as the kind of the avatar of what America is, because in this relatively compact space, you have every single major demographic group that is kind of fighting for power. You have, um, of course, the, you know, East Coast, you know, New York wealthy class that goes down there. You have the the Cubans, the right, conservative Cubans. You have the Hispanics that are, you know, the more, more liberal Hispanics. You have a big black community in Broward County. Um, you know, you, the panhandle is effectively the deep south. Um, so it's just this microcosm of every single issue that America is dealing with. I mean, Miami's going to be drowned under climate change. You know, the Everglades, I mean, you have environmental catastrophe. I mean, just every, you know, they have the mayor of Miami's trying to recruit all the tech companies to make, you know, Miami the new Silicon Valley. And some Wall Street hedge fund guys like Ken Griffin have set up trading floors in Florida. I mean, I feel like Florida is you know, in this one place, we see what the future of America is going to be. 
I totally agree. And it's funny because I was just thinking about this the other day. If you think broad in broad historical terms, um, the 1960s and the aftermath of the 60s, which defines the late 20th century America, was California. The counterculture came from California. Reagan came from California. California defined the late 20th century culture in all these different ways. And the Hollywood, of course, is there. And, and, now, Sil- and tech, Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley, of course, for the 90s. And now, you know, we are now in what's... I, I always think of this as like we're in the right-wing 60s, you know? Um, and, and Florida is the perfect backdrop for a right-wing 60s, right? And that's what these people are having. They're having their, like, big you know, revenge party on the 60s, but they're having it in this like... Well, and these MAGA you know, rallies are essentially festivals, right? I mean, they're they're like mini Woodstocks of all these people that come together to, you know, feel like they're part of something. That's right. And they feel like they never felt... Uh, they felt rejected by the 60s culture and by the that world, or they decided that, you know, they were resentful of how things played out for them. And here is their chance to uh, get their revenge. And here's Trump, who's offering himself as the Avenger. Um, And now he's down in Florida. And Florida is a populist state, right? You and I both know this. Everybody who's grown up in, you know, the eastern seaboard of America knows that Florida, everybody goes to Florida. Everybody's been there. You go to Disneyland. It's like a fantasy world. It never felt like the rest of America, right? It feels like a place where you can kind of step off of America for a minute and be like, hey, this is great down here. We're it's a pleasure dome, right? And you got Jimmy Buffett's on the beach and, you know, you can just have a ball and live in a fantasy world. And now that fantasy world is they want to make that the world, make America Florida, right? Now, they came up with that slogan thinking, we want the rest of America to follow our anti-mask mandate, you know, they're, that they somehow had done a great job on the virus, which is being, you know, shoved right back in their face right now. But, um, but just more broadly and thematically, that's what they really want to do is make it a place where, you know, there's no taxes and um, conservatives are on the ascent. Because Florida has always been a place where there's a, you know, a very strong Democratic presence there. And it's never been a full Republican state. It's always been a, a swing state in the, in the presidential elections. Um, but it's definitely on the ascent. The right is on the ascent in Florida. And, um, you know, for good or ill. But now the the the. Uh, the uh, the response to that is going to be interesting politically as we go forward. Obviously, um, the GIF that people keep um, sending me is the classic Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon sawing <laughs> Florida off of the map, right? Which yeah. is what a lot of people <laughs> uh, feel. I, I don't want that to happen. I, ha- I have relatives in Florida. I'd like them to stay connected. But um, uh, you know, the question is: is how is this going to play out politically? And I th- to the virus thing you said. You know, the effect that it had on Trump was that it reduced it kind of reduced his base, you know, mm-hmm. it, or it compressed it. Right. Yeah. And people who may have been, may have been on board for the tax cuts or whatever they perceived to be the thing kind of like edged away. Right. My dad is one. My, mm-hmm. my parents uh, both voted for Trump in 2016. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I. Yes. Well, we can talk about that. But um, and now say that way, for your therapist's appointment. <laughs> yeah. The therapist or my memoir. We'll, we'll figure it out. You know, and they have a condo in Florida also. And so they're down there, you know. 
But I think when they, this virus thing came along and in the middle of it, Trump was still acting Trumpy, like he just refused to take responsibility or govern or do anything, you know, adult-like. I think my parents were sort of like, I know my mom already was disgusted by him as many, you know, suburban women were, but my dad also edged away. And I think if DeSantis is going to, if he could get into the same trouble here, where it gets reduced to just the 33 percent, you know, hardcore, you know, they don't care Mm -hmm. what the facts on the ground are, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He could lose the middle. And that's the third rail you were discussing. And, you know, how that's going to play out, we'll see. Um, I do know that um, uh, this has been one weird summer because of of this spike and uh, how it's going to we have no idea. And I think the fall may will be the battleground because when kids start going back to school, it's going to be, you know, a lot of the same madness we had last year and it's going to get politicized and we're going to see where that takes us. Um, and by the way, you know, it was believed back in a, a year ago. And you'll remember that when the summer would come, the virus would recede. <laughs> yeah. Now, DeSantis's people argue, they've argued to me is that you know, Florida is kind of the inverse of America. The, the summer is actually the indoor season because it's so hot. So, you know, they'll say, well, you know, the summer's not really fair because everyone's indoors and come the fall and winter, it will go away because everyone's outside again. I mean, who knows? But that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. But I guess that's possible. Although a lot of people leave Florida for the summer. Also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, including Trump, who's, you know, in Jersey, right? Yeah, Bedminster, yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing I want to make clear is that, um, and I think I, I sort of brushed upon this, is like, um, this is a, I hope that people will go out and read my article. It's, it, it was uh, speaking in the New York Observer and our roots as newspaper reporters at the New York Observer. I, this was like a, in the spirit of the New York Observer for me. It was like, yeah. a, you know, kind of find the, find the characters and tell the story through the characters and the narrative. Um I, uh, but I still, I love Florida, so I don't want anybody to think that I'm hating on Florida. But uh, we were talking about the the split between Trump and mm-hmm. DeSantis, and what are people saying in MAGA world right now about whether Trump is going to try to, you know, what what might his role be in the next presidential cycle? Well, it's really split, and you know, I started out thinking out, you know, there's no way Trump's going to run again. You know, he doesn't want to be branded a loser twice. If you look at his business career, his entire life, whenever something hasn't worked, he's like a shark. He just moves on to the next thing. And when he went bankrupt in the early 90s, then he, you know, reinvented himself as this like, you know, TV reality host and pitchman, and then licensed his name and then did the Trump University and all that. So, and politics was just the latest grift. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, well, politics, you know, on one level didn't work for him because he lost. But, you know, then I hear the the point of view that he still got 75 million votes. And to your point, his ego will never allow him to have somebody take center stage other than himself. And so it's just like, I, I don't know what to think about because if he does run, the primary's over. I mean, there is no primary. He's going to be the nominee. Um, and I don't think DeSantis is suicidal enough to challenge him in a primary. 
Um, I mean, whatever skirmishes they have will, you know, play out behind the scenes. And but the minute Trump officially declares he's running, I think because DeSantis is only 44. Right. So he has a long political life ahead of him. So if Trump runs, I feel like his role is is very clear. He'll be the nominee and whether he can beat Biden or if Biden's a one term president who whoever the Democrats put up, you know, that will be, you know, closer than a lot of people think. Again, 75 million votes, more than any Republican has ever gotten. Um, But if he doesn't run, I think it's going to be very interesting. And, you know, there is a school of thought that in MAGA world that Trump doesn't want an heir, that deep down, whether it's conscious or subconscious, he would rather the Republican candidate lose again because then he could, he's not going to look like a loser. I mean, he could say, well, this, you know, they were terrible without me. And so there is this fear amongst Republicans that if he doesn't run, he may sabotage the, the race. Um, and he did that to some extent in, in, in Georgia, in, uh, in the special elections at the beginning of this year. Um, he didn't want Mitch McConnell. People who know Trump told me he didn't want Mitch McConnell to control the Senate. He wanted to punish Mitch McConnell for not getting on board with his election, the big lie. And so he barely went down there. And when he went down there, he didn't really, he didn't really uh, promote Kelly Loeffler and, and uh, David Perdue. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of like he's got the party held hostage, right? He either runs and they're, they're stuck with Trump or he doesn't run and he kind of brings them down with him. So I, I think that's kind of the current state of thinking in, in MAGA world. Yeah. I wonder how much his prospective Democratic opponent will make a difference in what he decides to do. I, I you know, I'm, if it was Kamala Harris that was running, he might love that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get two of the I mean, that's a twofer for him. He gets to do, you know, be misogynist and racist. I mean, that's like I mean, that's like his dream. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think he definitely would run against her. I'm sure that, you know, inside the party infrastructure, you know, they love the draw of Trump, but they would probably a lot of them in the McConnell, you know, kind of Republicans uh, would love it for to be like a Nikki Haley or somebody who could kind of like reinvent the party's profile slightly. Well, and that's what they're hoping with DeSantis um, is that he merges, you know, the MAGA base with, you know, the the country club class, you know, DeSantis, he loves to be a populist, but let's remember the guy went to Yale. It was in the same fraternity as George W. Bush and then, um, uh, Harvard law school. So, um, you know, this guy is, uh, you know, he's the establishment through and through, he's just playing this personality. Um, but he can play a MAGA personality. And so, um, but in, in private, in the back rooms, the wall street guys love him. So, um, McConnell would be very happy with the DeSantis campaign. The other aspect of this, we talk about the egos and whether they could ever coexist. I mean, it occurs to me that all these prospective candidates, it's we're in an apprentice sort of situation. So <laughs> suddenly, well, you right? know, I thought of that, too, when Ted Cruz uh, this spring went down to Mar-a-Lago and had dinner with Trump and he posts on Instagram like a thumbs up having dinner, like kissing the ring. It's like an episode of The Apprentice. It's really kind of uh, gruesome. And, 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 you know, this goes back to 
what we've been talking about, the floridization, which is sort of like the right-wing entertainmentization, the tabloidization of of, uh, of the conservative right. And you know, we talk about the conservative media, but I think we've made the point here that there, it's the media, the right-wing media, and the right-wing party you know, are the same thing. It's like it's one thing. And you know, the people like Matt Gates of they're the new generation where they've completely merged uh, performance art with politics. And uh, maybe that's just the way it's going to be from now on because of the kind of um, the structure of the media itself, the Internet, and just the way it is. You know, it's like there's no getting around it. Um, although I can't say that's happened on the left as much. I mean, AOC is a kind of meme-tastic, you know, uh, politician. She's sort of the left's version of that, I suppose, because she can, you know, get on Instagram and make a video or whatever. But um, but it's not to the degree of the right um, and, uh, well, know, everyone talked we're... about, you know, in the primary, how out of touch Biden was and was his campaign was this, you know, re- this, you know, dinosaur campaign. And, you know, and I think we see a little bit of this in, um, in New York city as well. You know, Eric Adams was not the trendy meme driven campaign. He was kind of this old school, more machine driven politician. And, um, and he, you know, he won the, uh, Democratic mayoral primary. So, yeah, on the left, it's interesting. It's more like the establishment, the the sort of centrist working class part of the party has reasserted itself other than the left-wing fringe, whereas on the right, it's the total opposite. Well, and exactly. And the big challenge for the centrist Democrats right now is to keep their party from having the same thing happen that the Republicans just had happened, which is having your your hard left flank, you know, uh, take over the entire uh, party. And on the one hand, maybe that will attract a very passionate base. Uh, but are you going to alienate the middle? And uh, I don't this is where the two parties are different. I don't think that the hard left could get the big could get the center the way that Trump was able to kind of get some center right he got that vote, you know. Well, if you talk of it, if you look at, I mean, this is now going very far afield, but, you know, you and I are both fans of Rick Perlstein. And if you read his first book about Barry Goldwater um, before the storm, um, he, you know, talks about how, you know, yes, Goldwater lost, but essentially this the 64 campaign made the Republican Party, a revolutionary party. It was an extremist, it was a reactionary party um, against civil rights and, and the great society. And, and so, you know, that DNA of the party has, you know, runs all the way through Reagan to Trump. And so, you know, the party itself is much more amenable to the radical base than the Democrats are because the Democrats is a much more diverse, there's just not one group that controls the party. That is where we're going to leave this conversation, Gabe. But one thing I want to um, throw in here at the end is um, Maggie Haberman, if she's listening. She's really mad at me right now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give her a little um, I'm sorry to her right now because she in my article Roger Stone said that they were good friends, and she's really mad that I published that. Um, so which I get um, because uh, I just I know that. 
he's probably a source for her. And um, she probably doesn't consider herself friends with him. And uh, so if you're listening, Maggie, sorry about that. But, um, you know, this is the world we're living in. If you're, if you're a journalist, there's often a fine line between a person who's a source and a friend, and it's a kind of a squishy middle zone. But it's also that squishy middle zone that uh, is the complicated world that we're living in when, uh, during the Trump times, on the cover of the New York Times or the Washington Post every week on a Friday was going to be this unbelievable yarn about what was going on inside the White House. And those people were, all those stories were fed by Trump staffers who were in, in, in practice acting like screenwriters, right? They were, they were feeding these stories to people like Maggie Haberman and reporters at the Washington Post. And everybody won, right? Because Trump stays in the news. He doesn't care if it's like a horrifying drama that makes you think the country is about to be driven into a wall. And the media wins because they get uh, everybody is riveted. They yeah. have to watch the show, right? It's like the um, through the looking glass version of the West Wing, you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's and so, you know, one of the things that's been in, in my well, mind, and I should is, just point out, um, you know, transparency wise, as a reporter for The Hive, I'm, you know, wrote many of those stories myself. So, I mean, this is this that was the culture that we lived in. So, well, that's and I was thinking this the other day, like, um, and I just wrote a story where I went down to Florida to kind of like some people are like, how could you go meet with these people? You know, I had a lot of people, people I know in the media or not in the media. They were like, oh, my God, why would you get near these people? There's they're toxic individuals. And and I did it as, and as an anthropological study. Right. I wanted to kind of figure out, is this real? Are these performance artists like uh, and what's the you know, what's the conversation in that world? But now that the Biden administration is, in contrast, the most boring. I mean, nobody is even paying attention to it, right? So are we going to get into a kind of back and forth in America where the Democrats come in and actually, like, manage the, uh, the business of the government? And then periodically or every other time, uh, the Republicans come in and just turn it into a gigantic spectacle of, you know, a, a horror show? You know, I— I hope not. Let's put it that way. Um, we don't know what the future holds. But we know Florida will shape it. So thank you, Joe, for going down there <laughs> and braving yeah. it for all of us. You know, I had a good time. It was interesting. You know, when I was sitting next to Ann Coulter in the convertible and she was pointing out like Rush Limbaugh's house and she was spraying her thighs with the like uh, sun tanning stuff and rubbing them and and telling me gossip and stories, I was just like, wow, this is not a place I expected to be. Um, but it's where I was. And so as a reporter, you know, that's uh, it's all material. So that was fun for me and interesting. And she's, you know, to her credit, uh, and I don't want to give her too much credit because I think that she's done some negative things <laughs> to the country's discourse. But um, she was probably the most reasonable person I met down there, which is if you want to know what this <laughs> oh, yeah. How unhinged it can get down there. Um, Gabe, thanks so much for coming on. It's like super delightful to have you. Thanks, Joe. Enjoyed it and uh, hope to do it again soon. We will. Uh, and for the rest of you, 
uh, listening out there. Um, Emily Jane Fox will be back either next week, the week after to uh, have a wrap session. And we'll look forward to that. Hello, Emily, if you're listening. And we will catch you next week. And that, my friends, is our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Gabe Sherman, special correspondent for Vanity Fair and The Hive, for coming on this week. Very smart, talented young man. Thanks to producer Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the people at Cadence 13. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe and come back week after week. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. And we'll see you next week.